And as we sit here silently, see if you can invite your mind and your body and your heart to enjoy the ease of simplicity, the ease of resting in the flow of simple present time experiences. Inviting your mind out of complications. Into simple hearing, simple breathing, simple body sensations. Allowing yourself to be fully present requires letting go of all the places the mind travels to out of habit. And by this appropriate letting go, letting be, You can rest your tired mind, your tired heart, your tired body, and just receive the sound of birds, the sensations of breathing, the sensations anywhere in the body, and find that beautiful rest And for a few moments, while you're inviting your mind to be simple and at rest, at ease, see if you can also call forth kindness, gentleness, warmth towards yourself, towards the world around you.
So you have both simplicity and ease, kindness and warmth as the basic attitude in your mind. The support to how you connect to your moment by moment experience. The beautiful sound of the bell invites a flow of simple hearing. So the bell sound arises and passes back into silence. The bell sound arises, it offers itself to us, it fades, and then the bell enjoys silence where it doesn't have to vibrate so much, it gets to be at rest. So this morning's session is on right intention and the Pali is Sama Sankapa. And again, because we're exploring the Eightfold Path, these are right intentions that are born out of the Four Noble Truths, born out of our understanding of dukkha and its cause, misunderstanding, craving, and clinging, that these patterns can be released, they can be uprooted, And that leads to the greatest freedom when we go through life not having these reactions of craving what we don't have, clinging to what we have for security, releasing those two habits at least. And then seeing what life is like as we flow on, 
um, not disturbed by those strong actions of mind. And right intention uh, comes as a second fold of the Eightfold Path after right view. <clears throat> and it's considered, uh, along with right view, to be in the wisdom training of the three trainings of sila, samadhi, and panya. So the panya is wisdom. We have right view and then right intention. As the Buddha described, there are uh, uh, the the basic problem we have that creates our uh, additional suffering, our agitation, is uh, wrong view, not seeing things clearly. And then he often would go on to say, um, right after wrong view, there are three uh, patterns in the mind that all of our confusion is, draw- is um, born out of. Our confusion, our agitation, our clinging, craving, suffering is born out of three roots, and they are greed, hatred, and delusion. And so undermining these three roots that are born out, that give birth to our, um, our insecurities and our fears, our frustrations, uh, our obsessions, our agitated obsessions, um, uh, painful longings, and great dissatisfactions with how things are. <clears throat> when, we, when we challenge these three basic roots, we challenge all the things that grow out of them, all the incredible varieties of mental states and emotional states that come to agitate us. And that's one way of framing the role of right view and right intention that right view, as we begin to cultivate it, see things clearly, understand things more clearly, that we're really dispelling this underlying pattern of delusion. Moha is the Pali word. And moha is um, not just misunderstanding, it's actually a lot of confusion. It's a lot of distortion in the mind. So, uh, we can get quite lost when delusion arises. And that takes time to cultivate the right understanding. And if you're following the Buddha's path, you know, you have to kind of, there's a lot of lists to memorize. <laughs> and then you memorize these lists and as you're getting to know them, you're also investigating reality and seeing that these lists are not just beliefs, but they really are trying to understand the way things work, especially in the realm of suffering, craving, and the end of craving, which brings the end of suffering. So that's the role of right view. The role of right intention can be seen as uh, transforming and challenging these two other roots of greed and hatred and all the things that flow out from them. So if you looked at the map of dependent origination, it begins with avijja, which is seen as um, wrong view, misunderstanding. 
And then below that is the, uh, the patterns of sankharas and all the patterns that develop because we don't have right view. Right immediately out of wrong view comes greed or hatred. Frustration with things that are not going your way and therefore a, an intense longing for something you don't have or clinging to what you do have. So that these, the patterns of greed and the patterns of hatred are very deep, primal um, confusions in the mind that grow out of wrong view. And then from them, they branch out many different possibilities of other states of mind that are confusing and agitating, imprisoning. And so with mindfulness, we can come in and begin to see these in action and understand their consequences and how expensive it is to be caught in hatred, even if it feels good at the time, like you're the one who's right and the other person's wrong and really fueling that, or getting caught in obsessing over something that you really yearn for and feeling that if you could get that, and if you could imagine getting whatever it is you're obsessing about, that that will bring you happiness, that that strategy leads somewhere good. <clears throat> and so it's the role of um, right intention in this flow of um, Daifold path to deeply challenge uh, greed and to deeply challenge delusion. And we'll get more on that into the specifics in just a bit. But to speak about <clears throat> uh, what is the role of intention or right intention um, again, we have the Pali word sama sankapa, and sankapa gets translated in many ways, and so we're preferring the translation of intention. But to see what sankapa is, we can look at other translations, and all these translations seem to be the bridge between right understanding and the types of actions we take from that understanding. So all of the work of the precepts flows out of right understanding. All of the role uh, and work of meditation flows out of our right understanding. But the very bridge that that right understanding um, passes through when it becomes action is intention. So this is Sankapa. Sankapa uh, Samasankapa has also been translated as uh, right thought, right attitude, right aspiration, right application, right purpose, right plan, and right intention. <clears throat> so to see that as people have been trying to understand what this bridge is between understanding and action. They've tried uh, different ways to translate, and not many of these translations actually go into the Pali word sankapa. So through a lot of research, I didn't find that there was a great way to kind of get at the Pali word. It seems to stand. Um, the things, well, the way people did break it down wasn't that helpful to understanding the role of sankapa as this bridge between understanding and action. You can see maybe that uh, right intention 
might be the way we start with right view, let's say that all things change. That's one of the views, one of the right views. And so you reflect upon that. And it's like all things change, all things change, all things change. How do I want to live with this truth? How do, what's a wise way to live with this truth? Well, if all things change, then it will guide my relationship to the things that I own, knowing they will age and fall apart. It'll guide my relationship to my body. It'll guide my relationship to other people. It'll guide my uh, relationship to small experiences, knowing that they'll change, knowing that a breath will come and go, or that my life will live a certain span on the planet in a sort of a large view, even that the world itself arises and passes due to conditions. So we have that understanding and then we begin to um, guide ourselves with that understanding. It's really that guidance that is the role of right intention. How do we guide ourselves uh, practically when we have a certain understanding? And if you sit in meditation and watch your thoughts, some of them might be kind of uh, just very busy uh, thoughts about random facts. But some of them, the ones we begin to dwell upon, actually might begin to frame our world. So you might begin to um, come in and you're trying to understand your relationship, say, to your parents. You're trying to understand um, the work you're doing or the studies you have or your occupation of the day. You're trying to understand it, trying to frame it. And that framing of it, when it comes into what's the practical thing to do? What am I inspired to do? Comes as wisdom, has a view, but you're facing the reality of your day. You're facing the reality of your moment. And that's where wisdom begins to um, collect itself into a bit of a plan, into a bit of a purpose, into a bit of an intention. From wisdom, how do I respond to this moment? And it's that coming into a response to the moment is this uh, movement of right intention, the sama sankapa. And so with that, you might see the pattern in these many translations. It's right thought, but not just sort of thinking the right things. Yes, there is change. Yes, there is change. That would be the thought used to kind of reflect upon wisdom. But as your thought begins to turn towards action, as you begin to apply wisdom, that mode of application that might come through thought, um, that's the role of sankapa. That's the role of sama sankapa. You can see that in aspiration. So you have an understanding, this is the way things are. What am I inspired to do? How am I inspired to, re to relate to the world? with this understanding. You can see maybe this is where purpose comes in. You're waking up in the day, seeing the day ahead of you. <clears throat> what is the purpose of the day? What is the purpose of any activity? What is the purpose of my speech? Is this wise speech? Well, what's the purpose behind it? Is this wise action? Well, what's the purpose behind it? It started off good. I, we opened up a conversation, but then the purpose shifted. And at first it was to say hello or exchange information, but then it began to wander as the underlying purpose wandered. So did the, uh, the quality of the speech. Does that make sense?
So you might initiate a conversation where you're saying hello to somebody and expressing your gratitude for them. These are all beautiful purposes. Then you hang out in that conversation and it gets awkward. You don't quite know how to end it. And so you start talking about other things. And then the underlying purpose of connection or gratitude, it, be, it begins taken over by a sense of um, some other purpose creeps in. And that is the changing from what would be sama sankapa, right intention, into varied intention, or we might start to glide into wrong intention. Does that make sense? Oh, I see a little more heads nodding. <clears throat> but we seem in this culture, in this community, to have settled on right intention, so that's the language we'll use. But it's really that bridge between understanding and application uh, and action. <clears throat> There's an interesting dialogue I've had with my parents. Um, my mother and stepfather are neuroscientists. And to their great horror, I've gotten interested in Buddhism and their great horror 20 years ago, which, which to them was they couldn't believe that someone who was a scientist and they were quite proud of my growing up in the world of science, would take this radical left turn off a cliff into the uh, hocus pocus of religion from their point of view. They're very uh, anti-religion. And in their own way, I actually find them to be quite spiritual people, but you can't say that to them <laughs> because there's so much framing around their, their fear of the delusions of belief systems. And so they, they're tenaciously... Um, adhered to science and what can be proved through the scientific method. And for them, they studied the nervous system, they studied uh, the brain and the nervous system. And I've, after 20 years, I'm just starting to get the thin edge of the wedge and to say, I've also been exploring the nervous system with as much dedication as you have been. And my lab is my mind. And I went to a laboratory called the monastery so the conditions could be very controlled. And I did a lot of experiments of just watching the patterns of what it means to have a mind. So I'm a first person neuroscientist and you've studied the brain from the outside. You've looked at it and studied it and looked at it, but you haven't looked at your own brain. You've looked at the brains of animals and humans. So you're a third person neuroscientist. And that conversation usually ends about there. <laughs> usually there's this like film of glaze and I can tell that they're being tolerant because they know that I, I'll argue this, but they're, they're not interested and this sort of film comes over and you can see their body language getting uncomfortable because they've been here many times and they know I don't give up, but they don't really, really want to respond. Uh, but slowly, because mindfulness is actually starting to creep in, it's just been funny to watch um, my stepfather come and say, hey, I read this paper on mindfulness and the neuroscience of mindfulness. Do you know anything about that? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> finally this day has come. <clears throat> but then it's very hard to talk with them about it because all of the framing, the deep powerful framing, is a first-person neuroscience and they're third-person per neuroscientists. And so they don't know how to like language their 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 experience. They haven't studied their experience. And so I start talking about it. And again, their eyes narrow and they're trying to track it, but at least they're trying to track it as opposed to that glaze. 
that comes over. And so I've met many of their friends and many of their grad students. Many of their grad students coming from countries far away have stayed with us over school vacations. And so I've been around a lot of neuroscientists and they're lovely people. But one of the funniest questions to ask a neuroscientist is, given all that you know about the brain, how do you live differently? And you see the eyes narrow and sometimes the film comes over. It's like, that's not what we think about. That question is kind of foreign. And then somebody might entertain the question, but it's actually not, they're there to study the brain. They're there to understand it. And maybe psychologists or somebody else will kind of apply what they understand. But that doesn't seem to be a realm of great importance to them. And my mom teaches neuroscience, so she can tell you exactly which neurochemical arises at which point and how it operates and exactly how our neuron fires and the role of hormones. And I listen to her. I love it. I get the sort of free download of, of all this Western wisdom on neuroscience. But there is close to zero translation of all that she knows into the wisdom of how she lives. That has come through trial and error, learning you know, how to be kind and how to pace herself and when to argue, not argue. But she has no translation between how she lives and what she knows. And so that's interesting. And then I've been able to ask many neuroscientists this question. As and they don't know how kind of sneaky I'm being when I ask it because I can put it... This, and I'm curious. All that you know, how does that affect your action? What comes out of all that you know? How do you steer your life any differently? And to see that that's not really a big part of their understanding. Or they have such an animal model often that everything is sort of a translation into, well, you know, this, there's, you know, mating is very important as a scientist would say. So obviously because I have a brain like this, I'm looking for you know, things to eat and I'm looking you know, to secure my mate and take care of my offspring. It's like, I don't think you're actually making the translation between all that you know and how you actually behave. And to see um, certain people I know having a problem with anger and they're studying the brain and their life is actually rocked by a pattern of anger. It's like, you actually know where anger comes from you actually probably know how to change it theoretically in terms of neuroscience, but you are not applying it to the problem you have. You don't even know that you have a problem. For you, you like how angry you are. You like it that you're tenacious. That's how you get where you want to go. You've never actually looked at the consequences. You've never looked at your own brain. You have one. You've been studying one, but you actually haven't looked at it and then learned how to apply all this powerful wisdom you have into living a better life. And so you can have libraries full of knowledge and you can keep writing new books about more knowledge, but it's that application of knowledge, it's that application of wisdom that translates into just enjoying a book or talking about the Dharma or imagining a better world, wouldn't it be a better world if? Oh, that would be a better world. Let's go do that. The let's go do that is sama sankapa. Just sitting there with the 
it's beautiful, and the Buddha had these lists, and I just found a new list, and I really like the list, and it's amazing how he framed it, and so many incredible insights. Oh, yeah, I agree. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, and then that person just took my parking spot. I can't believe it. Like, well, <laughs> you were just enjoying the view, but as soon as you went into application, you ran into greed, hatred, and delusion. And so this is our job, is to un- have understanding, but then translate that understanding. And so um, all the Eightfold Path is the translation of right view, including right view itself, developing right view, but then translating it so that you actually are living uh, a free life, that you are reducing craving and clinging that lead to suffering. And that's, that takes the application of wisdom. And that's this role of samasankapa. And the beautiful thing about samasankapa, as with view, is the view can get quite vast. It can span trillions of lifetimes. Or it can be right in the moment that you're with your breath and you feel the dawning of some memory that you thought before. And you go, ah, no, let's come back here. That's not fruitful. You don't even have to think it and then apply it. It can, be, it can become so intuitive that as you're going through the moment, certain urges are coming and you don't follow them. And you don't even have to do a big uh, coaching session inside. That's already the, um, the integration of wisdom and application. And you feel these urges all the time. You feel these urges to do one thing or another and you're making decisions all the time which urges you'll follow and which ones you won't. And sometimes they're clear to you. I'm having a strong urge for seconds and I'm already full. So let's not do that one. Let's say wisdom and application. Um, or I'm in a job and it's not fulfilling. Why is it not fulfilling? Well, uh, so you can go through a, a sort of an analysis of what's going on in your job and why it doesn't meet your needs. And then what do you do with that? And sometimes there's, there's a big gap between understanding and application. I have uh, many friends who have gotten into bad relationships and you start to give them some advice and they go, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And it can be a bad relationship to another human or it can be a bad relationship to a certain habit. It's like, this is not new information, but applying it is really difficult. And so this realm of application is very challenging to be intelligent enough to even get some of these views. Being intelligent is like, yes, all things change. Okay, because things change, no controlling that, there probably are limits to satisfaction of what any one moment can give me. Okay, yeah, I, I can kind of get that. So you can kind of get the Four Noble Truths and like, yeah, I get it. But then it has to pass through getting it into applying it. And that's this uh, powerful realm of intention. It's the powerful realm of samasankapa. Why it claims a place in the Eightfold Path. And then we can see as we begin to apply our wisdom, how that then bridges wisdom and uh, ethics, for example. So ethics are not just do it because it's the right thing to do. You do it because it's the wise thing to do. Your actions begin agreeing with your understanding. Your actions come into alignment 
with your values. And that coming into alignment is through this bridge of intention. Coming into meditation and seeing things clearly, if you didn't apply your wisdom, you would just run down the same old path that you always have run. You could sit there in meditation and think about the things you've always thought about. You can um, be caught in ruts you've always been caught in but you begin to have wisdom and then begin to apply it and begin to intervene. And intervening has you stay with the breath longer than you might. It's just a breath, but I've seen when I stay with the breath, I come out of the agitation of too much thought. So I'm gonna now turn my attention to thought and know that there's a wisdom to seeing thought as thought. And that's the application of wisdom. And all those decisions come from wisdom and then wisdom being applied. I want to read you um, one of the the, uh, the opening um, uh, chapter, I think you might say, in the Dhammapada. And the Dhammapada is a collection of um, sayings of the Buddha that were kind of pithy and useful. And so it's a small collection of things that he said repeatedly, uh, it begins with saying our minds, and I, maybe you've heard this before, but um, when we say mind in this tradition, um, it's really a combination of mind and heart. And sometimes it doesn't make sense to say heart to us, but if we say mind, we might think it's too intellectual. And to say mind heart over and over is a little, little bit laborious. So. <laughs> just have to know that when people are talking about mind here, they're really talking about the whole realm of the internal experience of emotion and mentality. So <clears throat> there are uh, many translations, but here's one. Um, our minds precede our experience. Experience is ruled by the mind. Experience is born from the mind. Now just stopping there for a moment, uh, it says, you could say experiences come to us, and so I ring the bell, the bell's vibrating, and then it, it comes to me. So actually, experience might perceive my understanding of it. There's a bell vibrating, and therefore, I'm coming to understand it. But really, by the time I'm even knowing there's a bell there, and it comes to me, it's filtered through my mind. Experiences are filtered, external experiences are filtered through the mind. So by the time you're having an experience, it's already gone through a lot of filtering. That you can understand English is a filter you have. If you didn't have English wiring in you, you couldn't understand this. You could sit here and you'd hear the exact same sounds, but no language would happen, no understanding would arise in you. So even having a conversation, it has to be, it has to come through the mind and be constructed so that you have the experience. So the mind you have precedes experience and therefore it creates the experience. If you're in an angry state of mind, then whatever's happening externally will be filtered by and construct, reconstructed inside through anger. And so it's like a TV signal thrown out into the universe. 
and then your TV, old TVs, <laughs> used to take the signal and translate it and then produce an image. Our minds are like that. That there is something happening out here, outside of me, <clears throat> but by the time I'm even encountering it, it's gone through so much filtering and interpretation that my experience is constructed by the mind. Our minds precede our experience. Experience ru- is ruled by the mind. Experience is born from the mind. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. And next stanza. Our minds precede our experience. Experience is ruled by the mind. Experience is born from the mind. Speak or act with a pure mind and your happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. And in these two images, you have uh, a sort of law of cause and effect. And the two images are interesting. As I heard one teacher describe it, um, you have the wheel following the ox. And so you have something um, being drawn behind the ox. So when you speak with an impure mind, um, trouble follows you like a cart that you're hitched to. So you're with an impure mind you're walking along, you're burdened by this thing following you, which is your troubles. And if you know ox carts, um, and you live in a country where there are a lot of ox carts, ox carts, people tend to drive ox carts down ox, ox cart paths, and they are worn. There are grooves there. So much so that um, it's actually hard for an ox cart to get out of the grooves. And it's actually okay. The old ox carts are almost like trains in a way that you kind of want the ox to go where you have gone before. Um, Not too many people are discovering new paths with ox carts. You load them up, the ruts hold the wheel, and the ox sort of walks forward. And the ox can't even make a change because the wagon wheels are in the rut. It's hard for an ox to find a new direction. When I was uh, in Burma, I would wake up and walk down these paths in the morning, and the drivers would actually be asleep in the ox cart and just ever so slightly awake enough to scold the ox. And that would get the ox lumbering forward, but they would be kind of curled up. And the ox really didn't have to make any decision. It would pretty much go where it had gone the day before and the day before and the day before. And the guy could almost be asleep at the wheel because the ox couldn't get the cart out of the track. But you come points where the road splits, and where the road splits and there is a choice, the ruts are not deep because ox carts have gone both directions. So in a choice point, you're not in a rut. But if you don't feel you're at a choice point, chances are you're just going to follow where your mind has gone time and time again. So with an impure mind, you're somewhat stuck in the ruts of previous patterns. And it's hard to break out of them. You also have the image of this weighted uh, cart and a very powerful ox. Very different imagery when we come to experiences born from the mind, speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as a shadow, unshakable. Now a shadow is light, it's not a burden. You don't, you don't even know it's there. 
but it follows you everywhere. And it's not something you have to haul around. And shadows um, can go over ruts and through ruts and they're not caught by our rut. Shadows aren't patterned that way. Shadows arise in the moment, usually from a bright light. So you have a bright light like the sun, it casts the shadow and you walk around in the light and the shadow just uh, follows you around, weightless. Two very different images uh, the Buddha's offering for what it's like when you have these patterns in the mind. Um, not sure I can capture the very first image, just that the image is one of um, uh, troubles following you like the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. And again, the cart being a burden, a heavy load that you have this powerful animal drawing, but the animal has no room for creativity. It pretty much just hauls the burden down the old path. That's a lot of what the sankharas are, are deep grooves in the mind that when you're unconscious as a driver or somewhat caught in the burden of being an ox, you just go down the path that, pe- that people have drawn their ox carts down these paths for generations. Hundreds and hundreds of years, you take the same path, the same wagging wheels. You can see um, the Oregon Trail in some places. It's still grooves left, even though people haven't traveled them for a hundred years, you can go up to Oregon and I think Idaho and see where uh, the settlers came with their heavy wagons. And they pretty much did the same thing. They could see where people had gone before. They got their wagon the same dimension. The wheels fell in the rut and the horses just would kind of go along. But you couldn't make a choice unless you came to a choice point. And at a choice point, the ruts are not so well defined. And you'll find in your mind when you can make a choice, is where the rut is not so defined. And that's some of the transformation of our underlying patterns is to make different choices so you're not just keep uh, regrooving the same ruts. And then a moment of freedom means that every moment is a choice point. And every moment there's not a rut of what you've done before. Therefore you can choose freshly every time what the right response is. Because there's no rut, there's no sleepy driver and there's no burdened ox caught doing the same old thing. Um, I think there are distinctions and to go into that would is a whole um, trying to clarify all the different words for mind, all the different words for consciousness. And so <clears throat> given how my mind works, I tend to um, be a little bit more of a stickler for definitions. And uh, I can be conscious of something, I can be aware of something. That's the That's an action where I'm aware of the colors in the room. And I might say I'm conscious of the colors in the room. Those might be slightly interchangeable as I'm using them in that. But consciousness as <clears throat> a, a realm of, of how we're constructed and mind, um, they're, they're distinct. Consciousness often is used as the, 
the fact that we can know something. And mind tends to be all the, all the mechanisms that come up. And so I can be conscious of the colors in this room and I like them. And I'm a li- still a little bit, I'm not a morning person, so I'm still a teeny bit uh, sleepy, but not so bad. So all those details are not so much details of consciousness, <clears throat> they're details for me of the mind. So mind tends to be all the nuts and bolts um, of mental experience. And consciousness often is used as a particular quality of the mind, to be conscious of what's happening, conscious of sounds, conscious of tastes. But whether you like them, dislike them, whether you're sleepy or irritated, joyful, patient, and all those different things arising, that's more the complexity of, of the mind. <clears throat> Yeah, not not so much in this talk, because it's it's a really beautiful, interesting talk to try to deduce the mind from the brain or try to deduce the brain from the mind. But getting in there with any type of um, clarity is a it's, it's a whole retreat almost. Um, <clears throat> it is a fascinating topic, and I love neuroscience. I'm just somewhat frustrated by the the paradigm of it that demeans and dismisses things they can't study through the techniques that they're comfortable with. Some people are very open-minded neuroscientists and they're fun to talk to because they're open to a lot of possibilities. And some really like the realm of um, just the mechanisms of matter, of cells. And <clears throat> that's it's fascinating as a world unto itself, but I don't haven't found it that completely um, is the right view to kind of hold all of human experience. Um, so if, if this, the, the tape of this ever gets, <laughs> the recording of this ever gets in the hands of my parents, it will lead to one more tense <laughs> Thanksgiving conversation. But they pretty, I think they pretty much know my opinion, but they get, that's where they get frustrated when I posit things outside of cells and atoms and molecules and the possibilities of co-created you know, experiences. That's where the eyes narrow and the fingers tap the table and <laughs> the anxiety creeps in. So that's kind of um, the intro on uh, the role that intention plays, this bridge between understanding and action and what it's like when you're, uh, this bridge is something that's a rut where old habits are just ruling you and you can be asleep at the wheel and just do the same thing and just live in your status quo. Or you might find that you go through a period of life where it's frustrating and you start digging in and because things are not going your way, these ruts of being stuck and angry and defeated and resentful actually begin to deepen. Um, I, I, I know a few people who have had really difficult turns in life 
and they have stiffened up and they have gotten resentful and their sense of hope and possibility diminishes and they just start like, the world sucks. And they're kind of like grinding this groove over and over and over, which is um, important to see that you're actually digging your rut. And it's not a good rut, but some of we like it. It's comfortable, we get stuck in it, and then all of a sudden we start digging this rut over and over and over, this attitude or opinion. You can dig ruts in, strangely enough, about wise view. The Buddhists are right, they're the ones that got it. Rah, rah, rah. The Burmese get it better than the Thai people. Rah, rah, rah. And you can kind of like dig this rut and it feels comfortable. And then your little ox cart gets to kind of be the, the right Buddhist and the one who really gets it. And you're going along and you find that you're not adaptable, that happiness is not following you like a shadow, that you're getting in more arguments and you can actually practice and it feels like the 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 juice and the joy is somewhat demeaning. So you start committing more to the Dharma and really trying to make it right and you grooving yourself deep into um, attachment to view, attachment to the Dharma and trying to make the Dharma your rut. I'm just going to like, I'm going to wake up every day at 6, 12 because that gives me enough time to get the coffee and then I can sit and I'm digging this groove, digging this groove and this is how life should be and it's like, ah, oh, my freaking neighbor had a party last night and now I'm all upset and I can't get in this Buddhist groove that was where all my joy was and it's my neighbor's fault for not letting me be in the rut that I'm so comfortable in and I just want my ox to pull the cart down the Dharma path and he keeps throwing me off it and why is the world so against me? I'm trying to be free and rah, rah, rah. <clears throat> <clears throat> I've seen this in other people. <laughs> <clears throat> Strange, strange how accessible it is, given that it was somebody else's experience. <laughs> and so coming in to be a little bit more specific about um, uh, calling forward not just right intention as an understanding, but what types of um, intentions end up being the most profound for our guidance. And so we look at uh, ethical behavior, we have five precepts, but it doesn't stop at five precepts. Um, or as we're looking at the precepts, those are ways that we begin to tackle some pretty big troubles, but really ethical action can be much more nuanced than you could distill necessarily into one of the precepts. And so right intention is all applications of wisdom into what you choose and how you act. But the Buddha pulled forward uh, three right intentions, and they're really meant to counter greed, hatred, and delusion. And so being in uh, right view is the deepest way of countering delusion. But bringing forward uh, these other three tackle greed and they tackle hatred. They're meant to kind of um, untangle them on the one hand, and also begin to bloom and offer the possibility when you're free of these states of greed and hatred, you then, one, get the benefit of being free of them, but two, then you start to get to live in the world with beautiful states of mind uh, as your guide, as your sort of your, your reward for being free, that the mind isn't caught in this rut. And so we come in to ch challenge greed and we come in to challenge hatred and then 
we get to also enjoy the benefits of what happens when we live with a hardened mind that are free of them, but also begin to feel their opposites. Instead of greed, you can have simplicity. You can have contentment with the way things are. Unbroken contentment. Unbroken contentment no matter what occurs. So there's no need to get caught in the fever of longing for what you don't have. You can go about uh, gaining things if you like, but it's it's never from a place of discontentment. There is a type of contentment with things just as they are. Yeah, well, it it can be one of these, but it can be also, um, it can be the fresh response to every moment, a type of a type of contentment that becomes um, disconnected from whatever is happening. It doesn't. It's not dependent upon what's happening. When you, um, as children, we all cried about things that we don't cry about now. And so we have a stronger access to a type of contentment where we would have been thrown before. So that's just one example of how you might, you may be bothered by other things, but you're not bothered by some of the things you felt when you were younger to the same degree. And so that's the growing of contentment that's less dependent upon conditions to the point where in full emancipation, in full liberation, in full enlightenment, there's nothing that arises that causes you discontent, that causes you an agitation uh, or something that's stressful. To be unconditionally free is to be free in all conditions. Unconditional freedom is not a set of conditions. Unconditional freedom means that you have freedom, enjoyment, contentment that's disconnected from conditions. It doesn't matter what's happening. No, all good Buddhists do not experience that. Some do, though. Some do. And that's, that's really the, the outcome of the path, is unbroken. I mean, one of the things you could describe, many qualities of what it's like to be free, completely free. But one of them is uh, an unshakable contentment. That's not, it's not disconnected from the world, and therefore not feeling. You still feel the world, but nothing that you feel causes... Um, a type of um, lowering of your sense of contentment. The Buddha was actually a quietly content person, no matter what happened, even when his cousin was trying to kill him, even when his two uh, great disciples passed away. There was an acknowledgement of that, but he didn't go into a suffering and agitation over it. He had a lot of pain at the end of his life, <clears throat> and it didn't cause him dukkha, it didn't cause him stress, it didn't cause him agitation. So that's, it's nice to have as an aspiration and to hold that, but to know that aspiration is not just an ideal, it's not just um, a myth, but it's really the outcome of the path. When you uproot craving, when you uproot ignorance that causes craving, and you uproot craving that causes dukkha, there's no dukkha, there's no agitation, there's no um, stress or disappointment. You really do see things the way things are. People were disappointed 
when they learned that the earth was not going around the sun. I mean, when they learned the sun was not going around the earth, that we, there was a loss of us being special and at the center of it all. And not many of us are disappointed by that right now. Not many of us wish we could go back to the time when we were the center of it all. And not many of us are frustrated by the fact that we are the third planet out around the sun. Actually, many of us can, joy, can draw a type of joy from that, the fascination that there's this star burning for billions of years. And we're the, at the Goldilocks place, not too hot, not too cold. And we go around the sun and we get to have all of this. And so it's actually this understanding is supports our joy. And, be, and there was a time when it was terrifying and confusing that we weren't the center of it all. And now we actually have a different frame and that different frame supports our joy. And so Nietzsche, um, understanding Dukkha, support, supports our joy. So when this is established, um, so is the contentment and the relief that comes with it. But it, for many of us, may also towards the beginning, we can hold it as a, as a, a compass heading, but maybe we can't quite conceive of the possibility of arrival at, uh, at that state. Yet this is not the, the eightfold compass heading. <laughs> it's the eightfold path, and the path does lead to the end of deep agitation. So the three uh, wise intentions, the three right intentions are uh, renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness. Renunciation, its intent, as I said, is to counter greed. And once greed has been uh, suppressed or uprooted, renunciation itself is a very blissful state. So it might start out as a challenge, but right renunciation, what wise renunciation is not just stoically going without. When you actually get into uh, right renunciation, wise renunciation, it supports a tremendous, tremendous uh, ease and um, grace and simplicity in the mind to know what right renunciation is. And maybe <clears throat> um, goodwill and harmlessness already seem like positive states compared to uh, um, hatred, but they're meant also to be the heart's response to challenging circumstances where hatred or irritation might have arose before some form of heart quality that stays connected through compassion or through loving kindness. Um, that's the bridge between your understanding and your experience, not hatred, irritation, frustration, uh, wishing harm, uh, brewing, um, brooding on how you want to get back at somebody or how much you dislike somebody. So these are the, the three intentions, and that's what we're going to spend the, the rest of the morning exploring, each one in the role that they play. Because we've been uh, sitting for about an hour, why don't we at least just uh, stand up? If you have to go to the bathroom, um, you could go now, but make it a have to, um, just so that we can do this pause relatively briefly.
I'd like to begin by looking at um, wise renunciation as one of the three um, components of wise intention. And there are two very, sh- very, very short uh, poems by this um, uh, Japanese monk named Basho. And, just the, uh, and they're, they're both so sweet and short. Uh, the first one, the temple bell stops, but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. And the second one, though I'm in Kyoto, when the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto. And so in the first one, a mind that... Um, is in a state of uh, contentment. The bell rings and the beautiful Japanese bells, each one probably tuned by incredible bell smiths, ringing through Kyoto, which is a place um, full of these incredible Japanese monasteries. Um, I guess the first one, it doesn't have to happen in Kyoto, but so the temple bell stops And then as soon as it falls into silence, the next thing that arises for him is the beauty of the flowers. So a mind not attached to the bell and therefore lost when the bell stops. There's the sound of the bell, the bell goes into silence, and then the next thing you know, there are flowers everywhere. And so that's a mind unclinging and finding the beauty in one thing, it passes, and the the very passing of the sound of the bell makes room for the beauty of the flowers. That's an unattached mind. And the second one is also just so dear. He's in Kyoto, this uh, valley of temples. But when the cuckoo sings, and there's this very beautiful sound, it draws up so much nostalgia for him that he finds he's missing Kyoto. So he's actually in it and the sound is beautiful and there's a type of attachment, there's a type of longing that arises and from that he finds he, through that longing that arises out of the beauty of the sound of the cuckoo, that longing draws up a yearning to be in Kyoto and he's right there. So in Kyoto, when the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto. And it can show you how the, um, the mind can attach to things it already has. You already have it, but through a strange twist of the mind, you feel separate from it, and then you want it. Does that make sense? Can you follow that in that, um, in that imagery? It's, it's subtle, but it's quite beautiful. He's in Kyoto, the bird sings, and through that, that beauty, that response to the beauty, he actually finds that he's missing something. And it's the very place he's actually in. I had this happen to me once when I was on a retreat in Massachusetts. It was my job to set the the tables in the morning for all the food before breakfast. And I was doing walking meditation because often I would set it and then there'd be time and people would come. And so in the 20 minutes between when I would set it and when breakfast would come, I'd be walking back and forth. And I was walking back and forth. My mind began to wander, but I, I didn't catch it. 
So I was walking by the tables I had just set in Massachusetts, and I began to speculate. I wonder if this is how we set the tables back in Washington State, where I did other retreats. Yeah, I kind of remember it. Yeah, that's right. They had the big spoons and sort of the pot goes. And that daydream got a little broader. And then I was in it. And then actually I thought, wow, I wonder if they do this at other retreat centers. I wonder if they do that back in Massachusetts. <laughs> and I was, wondering, I was like, how do they set the tables in Massachusetts? That's so interesting. I've been there so many times. What would that look like? And I actually was lost in this thought, walking by the tables I had just set. <laughs> and I was surrounded by the very thing that I was trying to investigate. But I was somewhat caught, because I had just crossed the continent twice in my mind, and I couldn't hold the, the vision clear enough. And I, was, you know, I had just physically done it myself. And so often, <clears throat> renunciation, you don't lose anything. This is the secret behind it. You actually gain everything through renunciation. And I, I promise you this, if I could promise you anything out of this particular part, you end up gaining the world through renunciation. There's this, I don't know if you know this, uh, comedian Stephen Wright, he kind of peaked a little bit a while ago. But he has, he has these great one-liners and he said, <clears throat> I have the world's most incredible collection of seashells. You might have seen it. I keep it scattered on the beaches. <clears throat> you can renounce things so much that because you then are completely empty of possessions, you have complete room for anything you encounter. It was one of the beauties of, um, I was ordained in Burma for a year. And it was a process of letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. And that was painful, letting go of my securities and my attachments. But then the spaciousness that was born from that, I was fully able to connect to anything I wanted, any thoughts come, because I had let go of so much. My mind was quite relaxed, at ease and spacious, and I could entertain any thought that would come. I could entertain any person I met. <clears throat> I could taste the food and really enjoy the flavors of it. I mean, there was, there was nothing that my mind couldn't actually fully be intimate with. And the intimacy I had when I had let go was so much more profound than the intimacy I had when I had all my attachments. When my mind is crowded with all the things that it's holding on to, it can't make room for what I'm connected to. It's like, you know, we've been in this conversation for about 12 minutes and I'm kind of losing it because I've got this busy day tomorrow and I'm still exhausted from yesterday and you know, like, sorry, this is about all I got to offer you in this moment because I'm so, I'm so bound up with the things I'm trying to manage, the things I'm holding on to. And it's quite different when you go through this process of letting go, renouncing, letting go. That, that opens up a spaciousness that is so tender and so full and so inexhaustible that when you do encounter something, you get more out of that experience than you ever could have had through clinging. It's the, the great diminishing returns that come through clinging, that come through trying to establish happiness. There's actually so much less room for it to be. You fall in love with somebody, and for the first hour, week, day, month, however long you're in that period of grace, 
you haven't tried to possess them yet. Maybe if you're insecure, you've been trying to, but if you're actually in sort of the dawning of a beautiful relationship, just the, the arms are wide open. Like, who are you? Tell me about you. And I haven't established any columns of what I need in, you're not part of my strategy yet. So there's just wide open, like, wow, who are you? And it's like, oh, well, you got this side and I don't like that side so much. So how do we be over here? And I start trying to cling to the parts of the relationship I like and struggle with the ones I don't like. And suddenly the open spaciousness that could have had you be anybody starts to be somewhat uh, limited by where I'm holding on to and trying to protect and what I'm trying to push away. And you can actually crowd out the entire relationship. So there's a tiny, it's almost like a hoarder and living in a house where there's nowhere to sit because everything is just crowded with the things that you've been trying to secure your relationship to by hoarding it, by holding on to it. And so there's very little room in the house you live in. There's very little room in your heart, very little room in your mind. And when I didn't get this when I was younger, I really tried to push things away. That renunciation, where there was attachment, I tried to counter that with a pushing away. So I ordained in Burma and there's some strong imagery to, to invite your letting go. And so for a time you might push away, but it's not, the, it's not where you want to end up rejecting the world, renouncing it, walking away in disgust. It was just letting go of the grip. And so I was pushing away all the things I yearned for back in America, all the comforts I knew, all the friends I had. I was like, I don't need you. And there was this, that's what I thought renunciation was. That was an initial state to kind of break some of the grips I had to kind of, what would it be like to do without and kind of open and loosen my relationship where there was attachment, where greed had caused me to clutch, fear had caused me to clutch. I just uh, matured that relationship. So after a while, I, I stopped pushing away. I just allowed things to be. It's like owning the greatest seashell collection. You just let them be on the beaches. That's right renunciation. Not taking ownership. Not clutching in ownership. There's right stewardship. So you might be a steward of something you've taken responsibility for, but without the clutch around it. In the monasteries, we had responsibilities and we had to show up for those responsibilities. But the clinging and craving and pushing and struggling was not the mode of how we responded to those responsibilities. So you renounce the tight ownership and you come to a very open-handed, spacious relationship to experience. And then once you kind of find the balance of that, then what you've let go of is yours all over again, just without the clinging, just without the attachment and the identity. So I had to let go of my family because there was attachment. And then I overdid it because the coaching was really strong to really push them away. And that created an opposite attachment, the attachment of, of not owning, of rejecting. And I thought that was bold renunciation to begin to kind of hate and push away and find uh, flaws in things so I wouldn't want to attach to them. That's just to break the attachment. But right renunciation is to op- open up into ease, simplicity, uh, non-attachment. That's the goal of this intention. Nothing can give you freedom. Freedom is one 
when we let go of inner bondage. When I was younger, um, I had uh, patterns of a type of renunciation, even as a teenager. I didn't really know it so much at the time, but I went to this wilderness canoeing camp in Canada and we would spend um, most of our, I mean, we spent six weeks with just, um, they said to bring two pair of pants, two t-shirts, two pair of socks, you know, because we had to carry it. You'd wash one and wear one. And when one was not wearable, you'd wash that and wear the other. And, <clears throat> and when many of us had come back year after year after year, it was amazing how trim we'd all gotten but everybody had a few little things that they would trim and then step up a notch just to kind of have some little thing that um, would make being out there a little bit more delightful. So you might have you know, a camera that you brought with you where you didn't need one. You might have um, you know, brought music with you where you didn't need it. Everybody had like a little thing. But I was impressed by <clears throat> the, the people, it was really my first encounters with deep renunciates was at this canoeing camp, these wilderness guides who had done this for 40 years. These really, these older men who had done it year after year after year, and they brought nothing with them. And they were the happiest people I ever met. It'd be a rainy day, and we'd all be miserable. <clears throat> and this one guy, he just like he was the first sort of um, real mythological character I'd met. He had a rain suit, and he had a pipe, and he learned to turn his pipe upside down, and he packed the tobacco in so it wouldn't fall out of the pipe. And so he'd be smoking his upside down pipe, and he would just be, there'd be this glimmer. It's like, what are you thinking about? It's like, I'm not thinking. Like, why are you happy? It's miserable, it's cold, it's raining. And it's like, I'm watching you guys shiver, and I kind of see how miserable you are, and it makes me laugh. <laughs> it's like, What's going to throw this guy? It's like raining on us. We're not happy. But where are you drawing that? Like, it's like, okay, he's, he's maybe you know, had a good cup of coffee. But I saw him all summer long in so many circumstances. Nothing would throw him. We were out in the, you know, there were mosquitoes. There was hot weather. There was cold weather. It would rain on us. We sometimes would, couldn't cook our food because we couldn't get a fire going. You know, we slept on the ground. And he had a joy in him. I was like, what's that? I want that. I haven't seen rich people have that. I haven't seen smart people have that. I haven't seen my teachers have that. I haven't seen politicians have that. I haven't seen anybody have that. What's that? How does he get that? And he didn't have a path. He didn't have an articulated path. And so I just kept going year after year and it became a bit of my early spirituality was suffering my attachments for the first week or two, sleeping on the ground. Oh God, why did I come back? Here are the mosquitoes. Here's the flat ground. Here's the misery of the rain. And then I just watched the strain of preferences, the strain of what I wanted, begin to kind of buckle under how hard it was to just wish things were different. There'd be this depressive let go. It's just plain miserable. And then there'd be the sort of re-emerging, like it's cold, but it doesn't have to be miserable. It's just cold. And then that renouncing my uh, middle-class background of you know having hot water when I wanted it, having 
a kitchen to cook my food in, no mosquitoes, an actual bed, uh, many more clothes than I could possibly ever wear, clothes that I never wore anyhow, but I kept them anyhow. And going into <clears throat> one pair of clothing that I wore and one pair of clothing I had washed that was ready to wear when this pair of clothing gave out. <clears throat> and I discovered a type of happiness that when I would go home and I would meet my high school friends, it's like, hey, how was your summer? Uh, it's boring. Oh, but there was no school. What'd you do? Uh, I don't know. We went to the beach and boring. And went to these parties and boring. And watched a lot of TV and it was boring. And there was one great party, but, you know, looking back, it was kind of boring. And like this sort of teenage malaise. Like I spent two hours not in school. What'd you do with it? Uh, bored. I don't know. Bored. It's like, well, what'd you do? And it's like, wow, I like canoed across this two-mile lake and like the headwinds you can't imagine. The strain of it, like, oh, I'd never do that. It's like, it's one of the best days of my life. It was so invigorating. And then it's like, what else did you do? Well, you know, I slept in a tent like for six weeks. I'm like, yeah. And you know, at first it was uncomfortable, but then it was just so light. And then this lightness of being, all I needed was a tent and a change of clothing and enough access to food and then was just traveling around enjoying the beauties of nature. And it was a, a slightly, you know, not a complete setup because we had to pay for that. But there are lifestyles very close to that, you know, um, agrarian lifestyles and wilderness lifestyles where you live very simply and you find a livelihood that supports that. And then you live with just this light shadow that follows you. Not that everybody lives in rural settings is in this state of bliss, but um, there is a type of bliss that comes when you're not getting your happiness through objects and through comfort, but you're getting it through the uh, um, suspending preferences, suspending the agitation of preferences so that you're not having to clutch at one thing and reject another. And then later on when I uh, was looking for a way to make it a lifestyle, that I got so passionate about it that I was looking for a way to make it a lifestyle and coming into meditation heard about monasteries and built the mythology. It's like, yeah, I want to go and I want to be a monk. I, I've already seen through the complications and the burden of having and maintaining. Um, so what if we just pull this down to the bare necessities? Um, Thoreau did this in New England once when he lived on, by Walden. He just greatly simplified his life to see what the basics of life were all about. And so when I was in Burma, I had a cabin. It had a bed. It had a, an attached bathroom, which was quite a lug, luxury. The bathroom was really just a hole in the floor um, with something underneath it, a little septic system underneath it. Um, I had a window that had a beautiful view. I had a chair that I sat in. I had uh, some books that I was reading, just a couple of them, a pad of paper I kept notes on. I wore two sheets. If you took your two sheets off your bed, that's basically the clothing I had. One sheet wrapped around my bottom, one sheet wrapped around my top. I had a bowl, much smaller than this one, but about this shape. And it held about what was worth eating in a day. More than that, you couldn't eat less than that. Um, you might go a little hungry. And then <clears throat> I would walk out of the monastery in the morning at uh, sunrise, 
past the ox cart that were coming from the village out to the fields, and we were out in the fields heading towards the village, so we'd have to step aside as the ox carts walked by. Walked to the first, uh, the edge of the town, and it was January, so in these two little bed sheets, I was cold, and so I'd be shivering. Had this metal bowl, and I stepped forward, and this woman was there every single morning, and she gave me a, a large spoon of rice. And it fell to the bowl, it was metal, so the heat went right through the bowl and right into the palm of my hand. And that this uh, woman I'd never met, I don't even know her name, because we were in silence. I had, I had uh, given up everything and therefore become somewhat fragile and dependent upon others, and to be met and taken care of in that greatly simplified state, so that the warm rice would come through and the physical rice fed my body, the warmth of it um, really renewed my faith in humanity. This sort of beautiful warmth would come through and I felt good towards life. And the fact that this other person had taken care of me um, was such a beautiful framing for the day. It was such a lovely way to start a day, to walk and then have people put spoonfuls of rice in this bowl. And by the time you pass through a village, you have a little mound of rice and someone would put in a samosa, someone else would put in a curry, someone else would put in you know, a few vegetables, and that would be your noon meal. And come back to my fairly empty kuti. And that was very different than when I went there. I was, when I first headed over to Burma, I talked to this one woman who had been there, and um, I said, well, what should I bring with me? And she gave me three pages of things to bring. And it was, it was my just-in-case fear bag. It was a 50-pound bag of fear, <laughs> of you know, middle-class American standards peering into the lack that was over in Burma. I was like, oh, you better bring this, and you better bring that, and they don't have this, and they don't have that. So I got all the things that I thought I needed, which looked less than what I had. You know, had an, an American life. I had a bed, and I had comfort and warm, uh, warm water, a bathroom. But I kind of shrunk it down to a 50-pound bag of fear which I thought was a lot of reduction. And it was a lot of renunciation to get my fear down to 50 pounds. <laughs> I mean, how much do you weigh if you count your car and your things you own and what's in your garage? And like, How much do each of us weigh? You know, it's interesting. Someone was saying if you put everything you own out on the lawn and take a picture, was that maybe Vanushka? Just you see like what the owning is of, of an American life. And I carried this 50-pound bag of fear with me over there and I held on to it. And none of it was necessary, because I actually had already learned to live in the woods, that a lot of this stuff I didn't know any better, but I started giving away my fear. And as the bag got lower, so did my clinging, so did my strategies of how I was going to take care of myself just in case Burma couldn't do it, just in case Burma didn't have enough for the American me. What if I had to go without? And I realized that Holding this bag of fear for security was actually a burden. It was, the, it was the cart behind the ox. It was all my previous attachments distilled into certain forms, packed into this bag of, I called it my bag of fear. Heading over there, it was my, it was my renunciation bag, because I reduced the, my wants down to this one 50-pound duffel bag. But then it's like, why am I holding on to this? I don't need this. Why am I holding on to this? I don't need this. And over time, relaxing my fears, coming into feel what it's like to be a simple monastic, 
and you know, I had a bowl, a couple of robes, I had a razor and a mirror, I had a passport, I had a notebook, I had a couple of books, that I, um, and I was lucky to have a bed to actually sleep on and a way to keep the mosquitoes off of me with the cabin. And it was wonderful to watch the incredible labyrinth of my mind that had been trying to establish my worldly life, which is needs income and you know a house and all this sort of the wanting to bring it down to actually what do I need? You know I do have a place to stay, and it keeps the weather, the rain off me, the mosquitoes off me, and I have two sheets and it covers my body and gives me warmth. I have a bowl for food. Um, and just that great, great, great deep simplicity. And having given up that much, I gained so much more. I gained a, you know, a millionfold for every thing I let go of that created space. It created ease, simplicity. And that spaciousness could then welcome in everything because there was such a great space. Like this is a great room. It holds a lot of people. It's empty. Because of its emptiness, it can hold so much. I mean, you might hear the word emptiness um, talked about in, you know, in Buddhist philosophy, the great emptiness. The great emptiness holds the great oneness. It's the power of zero that can hold the profundity of one. And if this room were crowded with things that we were trying to hold on to, there'd be less space for us to come and go within. So that's the, at least some of the imagery of renunciation. We might think of renunciation as an outer thing. What do I have to let go of? What do I have to get rid of? And it's really just relaxing the grip, relaxing the attachments. That is the benefit of renunciation. But that's outer renunciation. Inner renunciation is um, all the ways that we make space inside of ourselves the ability to let go of your worries about tomorrow or your fantasies about tomorrow, your strategies of where your happiness is elsewhere. What's it like to radically let go of them? And in a moment there's like, ah, but if I let go of this, how will I be happy? And you take the stance and you let it go. And the very moment you let it go, you hear the birds sing. And in the space where your mind was wandering about how happy you might be tomorrow, you finally hear the turkey's gobble and it, it's so humorous and strange and you're present for it that in the very space of the strategy you've let go of to be happy that spaciousness allows you to uh, truly taste the food to truly hear the sounds and this is actually the secret monastic joy that it looks like people have given up so much and secretly, I don't know people who have access to more than people who have let go. Once I learned that as a monk, <clears throat> I was able to uh, let go of the outer training. And I would have stayed in it, actually. It was quite a beautiful lifestyle. My health got challenged. And I worried that without the outer container of renunciation, I wouldn't know how to have inner renunciation. But luckily enough had caught, the fire had caught, the understanding had caught that 
I have actually, I'm so much more of a renunciate, a true renunciate inside than I was when I was a monk because I've carried that training. I've carried that wisdom. I've developed this intention to have, to be in the world and not be tangled up in it. I still get tangled up. But I don't have to live in a forest not to get tangled up. That was a training period. And now I'm back in the world interacting and I find my hands are not as sticky. I'm not trying to establish and cling as much. So as lay people, we don't actually have to become monastics to know what the, the full benefit and the full possibilities of renunciation are. It's just to look where there's clinging, where there's trying to find security through attachment, through the strategies of greed for what you don't have, as if happiness would come to that, and recognizing the deeper freedom, the deeper happiness, the deeper intimacy and uh, union you can have when you don't try to possess or push away. But when you develop the capacity to be with things as they are, that intimacy will give you more than a thousand years of clinging, than a thousand years of craving. The actual, uh, the, the true beauty that comes through the eye or the ear, even though it's fleeting, will impact you much more than if you had gotten to that same encounter through craving or clinging. It's actually the craving and clinging that blocks you, which is why it's like drinking salt water. You crave and cling your way into something beautiful, but because you got there through the agitation of craving and clinging, it doesn't get in. It, it, can't, it can't go as deeply in, and therefore it's not as satisfying, and so you have to keep seeking. But by letting go of where you've been uh, had desires of what you don't have, when you let go of the craving and clinging, even to self and identity, a so much more beautiful self, a so much more beautiful temple arises in the space where he might have accidentally or intentionally tried to establish himself. If I tried to establish myself as a good public speaker, you guys would suffer a lot more. If I was trying to do it right, if I was trying to make you, make, if I was trying to construct and offer you something as a strategy for how to be the right guy, you wouldn't get the guy in front of you. And I've been him, he's not better. <laughs> I've tried that strategy and it, does, it seems good until you try it and you realize I can't connect to you and you can't connect to me. But by actually renouncing internally the strategies of craving, clinging, and selfing, that you can get into a type of intimacy and fluidity not hung up by craving and clinging that allows an intimacy that allows you to have much more, um, it's not quite ownership, but the relationship is so deep to what you ha encounter, it's deeper than you could own. It ends up not being shallow. Anyways, that's the inner renunciation is really uh, a lot of our work of letting go of the strategies of craving, letting go of the comfort of past habits, renouncing them, renouncing your way your mind has worked in the past so you can open up to what's possible here and in the future. Hmm. 
um, <clears throat> there is something called temporary ordination. And it's in our Theravadan tradition that people can ordain for a week. And many people in Burma will ordain as a, it's one of their coming of age um, processes is sometime in the monastery and possibly in the monastery ordaining. So it's common in, and so some of us have done that. Some of us knew it was going to be temporary going in or thought it might be long-term and then found due to conditions, how things unfolded, that some people did stay on and some people have been lifelong monastics and some people have gone in. And then at some point, um, it's interesting how it happens. It's maybe a longer story, but at some point, the role of being ordained uh, doesn't feel accurate. It doesn't. It doesn't match what's actually happening. And to stay ordained, it's it's ill-fitting. It doesn't fit. And maybe there's sadness around that. But then you disrobe, and um, you're not a monk or a nun for life. You're a monk or a nun for that day. And that day might lead to another day, lead to another day, and it might be a full life. You might take a, a vow to be a monastic for life. Some people have, and I've come to a place where they've disrobed. Then there are lay people like you and I, and they might um, uh, find a partner, and through wisdom and understanding that relationship, they might uh, decide to get married, and they might decide to have kids. So it's a possibility. Is there a lack because there's no... I mean, is there a feeling that, that perhaps... Did, can I ask you, did you yeah. have a feeling of lack at a certain point? Um, yeah, I mean... Because you expressed yeah. that you had affection for the one that gave you rights and took yeah. care of you. That is, in essence, a relationship. Right. I found a deeper intimacy with humanity as a monastic and I've translated that that mode of being out of the form and training of being a monastic so you might conceive of it it might be easier to conceive through the form of it the form of it was the training of being a celibate monastic didn't find it any more lacking than anything else I've done and the lack wasn't an internal was an internal one not an external one and I found better friendship because I wasn't so agitated. Um, better intimacy. I was a better citizen as a renunciate than I was before that. And then since that, um, it's really applying the, the wisdom outside of the training. And so you can train to, be, to externally renounce and learn what internal renunciation is like when you don't live with a heart and a mind bound up in craving and clinging and becoming. And then once you see that, it's not dependent upon the, the external, but it's actually that was a training to liberate the internal. Then there, for many people, there comes a point, and it was, there was just sort of a, a sense like, as my health was declining because I got ill, in a sense, I really hadn't finished my business with my family. And going back to my family in robes would counter the business I wanted to finish with them. Through a lot of reflections, it came that I was going to, I thought I was going to temporarily disrobe, go back 
really work out some things with my family, really um, recover my health, and then come back and ordain again. But as my path kept unfolding, the need to have that external training form of renunciation um, wasn't a necessary support for my liberation, that I could practice the same modes of liberation, of renunciation in daily life. So um, what I'd like us to do is actually um, do uh, an exercise. And it's the same type of inquiry that we've done before where you partner with um, someone else. And partnering with them, um, first let's see if there are um, an even number of people. And there might be one threesome, but let's see if we can get uh, there being two people. The first person is going to ask, what do you need? And then don't try to get too clever in saying nothing. (laughs) See if, as the person says, what do you need? See what your organic animal body self as you are, what comes up? What really comes up as a need? And speak it. You're not claiming it. It's not something that you are claiming. I will always need this. But in the moment, what do you need? And see how your mind responds to the question of need. And we'll do that for, um, we'll do that for uh, 10 minutes each. So it's a meditation. It's a meditation on what do you need? And then we'll flip it and the other person will get 10 minutes. So you ask the question slowly, the person responds, and you say thank you. If the, the question asks, ask or you find a kind of a gentle pace so you don't have to keep drilling them with the question. Let it be a pause, ask the question again. If you're receiving the question, take it in fresh. So you've given a response, then renounce your response, let it go. The question comes again, and what arises might be the same thing, or it might be something different. And then, uh, as Sally's saying, when the question comes to you, you might find that there's a second layer that's not so much about the content of what you need, but um, you might find the question interesting, or you might find the question a burden. You might find the question frustrating. And so rather than the question pointing you at a content question, I need a bicycle, I need food, that's content. Just starting to like, you might feel the beauty of having needs and the vulnerability of having needs, or you might find the burden of having needs just by being asked that question over and over and over because we are in a realm where if we we have needs, needs arise a lot for us and can they be let go of or are they wise? And what's the wise relationship to your intuition and how your mind's formulating something? I don't have this. Do I need it? Actually, I do. I don't have water and I'm thirsty. I do need water. I don't have as much money as I want. Do I really need it? Partly. So these might be reflections. As you're hearing yourself speak, you might begin to tune into how your mind is constructed today in relationship to the question of need. Does that make sense? Hey? Yeah. So need means things we don't have or things we do have in our lives? Both. Okay. Both. Whatever, whatever that comes up, it might be, and it's not just things you don't have that you know that you need. It's things that you 
at this moment, your mind says, I need this. And then you might hear yourself say it and say, actually, I don't need that. But it was an authentic response. I, I need more love in my life. Hmm, is that true? Huh. So just, just respond and don't get too, too Buddhist about it as far as <laughs> saying the right thing. But just see what comes up. What comes up as expose this realm of, of need. And then maturing your relationship to need matures your relationship to renunciation. You could you could hear the word want and need. You could hear yourself. It's a little bit deeper than just wanting. Like, yeah, I want to go see the movies, but I don't need to. Need exposes a little bit more of where our safety feels, or where we're taking care of ourselves, or you know, what what do we need? So I would keep it in the realm of need, but some of them might come forward closer to want. But have it have your mind pointed towards what you think you need. Again, don't don't just be a Buddhist and say nothing. Emptiness, liberation, <laughs> like feel into it. Feel into the question. So let's um, find a partner of your same height. Let's see how many people can roughly be of the same height. If there are a few groups left over, that's not the worst thing. Different heighted people can do this, but we're seeing if we can find people of roughly the same height. Raise your hand if you don't have a partner yet. And people of different heights can work together. <laughs> so, <clears throat> is there one pair that would take in a third? And what happens is that um, you rotate, one's an observer, one's an asker, one's a responder, and you each get seven minutes. You have to do an internal timing of that. Does that make sense how to do that? So everybody else in pairs, you're just doing it in pairs, 10 minutes each. But the one triplet, they're going to do it uh, seven minutes each. Yeah. Just rotate the role of observer, asker, and responder. I will so you guys don't have to track it. Yeah. So decide who's going to go first. Those who are... Everybody's on the same level. That works best. And so when I ring the bell, you can begin, and then we'll switch in 10 minutes.
switching roles. And begin. Remember to receive the question fresh every time. Renounce your past answers.
bow to your partner or thank your partner <clears throat> and come back to your seats. Would anybody be willing to walk the mic around? Okay. Thank you. I just want to hear some feedback of what that experience was for you and if it, you found it related to renunciation or not. So anybody want to give a small response? And... <clears throat> If you haven't had a chance to speak up yet in the hall, uh, please take this opportunity. So if you have spoken already, just give a little pause. Sometimes it takes shyer people a few moments to gather their courage. But please. So this is not meant to be facetious. Yeah. But that seemed like a whole lot of time to do a renunciation exercise. <laughs> I was like filling up that bowl with a lot of stuff that I wasn't sure I needed. <laughs> well, did you... Did you manufacture things that you needed just to fill the time? At a certain point, I felt like I did. I mean, I said that, actually. I said, like, I feel like I'm starting to make stuff up now. Right. To finish the exercise, which I know sure. I didn't need to do, necessarily. But you did it anyhow. I did, because <laughs> I was following the rules. Well, it, that, that happens in this, particular, <laughs> in this particular form, and to learn this particular form of inquiry, um, if you haven't done it a lot, this comes up. And so the real, the, the way to respond to that is to sit. And sometimes you sit there for a moment and you really can't think of anything you need. You're allowed to sit in that moment as an outcome of, wow, I've pretty much exhausted what I think I need. I've said it. So here's a moment I can't think of anything I need. I'm, I'm played out. Which is an interesting thing that you got to the end of your needs. And often in that spaciousness, oh wait, I do have one. Yeah, yeah, there is one. And a new one might come. <clears throat> Just so you know that in this exercise, we do them here at Spirit Rock. Um, when you're doing inquiry, sometimes we get content focused. And so there's a question, I should fill it. There's a question, I should fill it. And sometimes you can, it's more to actually draw you into the process of the, of the area, looking at needs. And so you're offering content, but at some point, you might feel the burden of like, stop asking me. I'm so tired of need, need, need. You see that Jackson Pollock movie? Sometimes his wife says, all you ever do is need and need and need. <laughs> Anyways, you might say it to your partner. It's like, why don't you stop asking? I've done all I can for eight minutes and you still, what do I need? So anyways, that could be the response. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> Raise your hand high. I noticed about halfway through it, I just had a tendency to create my next answer before it was the question was asked. Yeah. So um, I used that pre-created answer maybe twice, hmm. and then I tried to 
just close my eyes and take a few breaths and reconnect with the present and, hmm. and then answer as as the question was being asked. Hmm. And I found that around that halfway point, I sort of got like a little resistance against the exercise for that purpose. Mm-hmm. But then after that point and settling back into it, I noticed a uh, more of an openness to the exercise. Mm-hmm. And I thought the second half was really useful after I could just make that shift into the present moment. Great. So. And what did you notice in the second half that was useful? Just more openness and mm-hmm. a deeper connection to what was really happening in my response to the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just feeling it. This type of inquiry process some people will do for a whole um, weekend. They'll take one question and it gets like, oh my God, I can't take it anymore. And it's almost like meditation, like I can't watch another breath. And then you find, well, what else am I going to do? So you (laughs) go back in and you find you go through a layer of resistance. And rather than buckling under the layer of resistance, you stay with it. And then you find it's a meditation. It's meant to be, it starts off as a dialogue, but becomes a type of um, encouraged reflection. What do I need? What do I need? What do I need? And someone else is holding you to the task, and so you would stay in it longer than you would maybe on your own, or your mind would wander, but it's like, no, no, bring your attention here. What do you need? And so you're letting the other person support you in the inquiry of what do you need? Thank you. Anyone else? I found it wasn't until like the last minute that I I really felt something from my answers that Mm. I'd gotten to some some deeper answer, and it just seemed obvious once. I said it, but uh, yeah, I didn't know until I, 10 minutes seemed like ridiculous, but it was actually useful for mm-hmm. me. What did you come to in the last minute? Um, I guess kind of a deeper uh, feeling of what my heart needed yeah. instead of, you know, the basic things that I think I need. Hmm. Great. You can also do this exercise on renunciation to say, you know, what do I cling to? And that someone could go through that and you'd come up with a whole bunch of easy answers and then run out. And then you have to start searching for what do you need, what do you cling to? And you start discovering that there are these underlying things and they begin to kind of, as you sit with it, past the easy answer, then the exhaustion of what's easy, and then really the opening begins once you've kind of done all the easy ones. You have to begin to kind of intuitively search into your system to see, is this question even relevant? Say, oh yeah, well, I do have these needs. I do have a need for friendship. I do have a need for care. I have a need for purpose in my life. And then you can, are they really needs or are they just, would that just feel better? So it just draws you into the reflection. And 10 minutes is actually the starting place. You need If you do for five, you get all the easy ones. And then you're, check. 
But you start doing it for 20 minutes, you're like, oh my God. But in that, <clears throat> you're kind of held into the reflection. And then in that place of exhaustion, you start getting at deeper resonances with the question. The question starts to kind of become a whole, what is it? What is it? What is it? There's some um, Zen forms where, you know, for years people have just asked the question, what is this? Meaning this moment. What is this? What is this bell? What is that sound? What is this mind? What is life? What is this? What is this? What is this? And it gets burdensome and then becomes like the breath. It's just something that's happening. What? You're just asking, what is this? What is this? It's oatmeal. What is this? It tastes. What is this? What is this? What is this? Over here. I was one of the lucky ones. I only had to do it for seven and a half minutes. <laughs> but um, I was surprised by how many, how few physical things I needed mm. and how many emotional things I needed, like love and mm. connection and the welfare of my kids. I mean, there's very, very few physical things that I needed, mm. which, was, which was interesting. Mm. Great. Thanks for sharing that. And we'll wrap there just for this part. So this is actually just one of three of the right intentions, renunciation. Um, And there's more to explore about it. We're sort of really uh, opening up to the, what is wise renunciation? What is wise letting go? And in the, again, sort of the crux of it is that until we know, until we know better, we try to establish security by holding on to things. We try to establish security by investing in things. We try to establish security um, through even what seems like positive forms of clinging, establishment, positive sorts of um, holding something together, and just. What happens if we let go? As we move through the world, you know, you can swim through water even though there's nothing to grab onto. You're buoyed up. But in fact that, strangely enough, when you take a breath in, many people weigh less than the water they're displacing. So just by breathing, you float in water. And there's nothing to establish, but you just have this buoyant possibility and the same is true of a, of a mind in, in wise renunciation. You don't sink. You actually float. And then you can swim about as long as you're, as you're breathing, you weigh less. And that's where the floating comes from. And it's the possibility in relationship to our lives that rather than clinging and sinking and then struggling to stay above water, letting go and breathing offers floating, and from floating you can swim. So that's the, uh, the cultivation and exploration of wise renunciation, externally and internally, letting go of your thoughts, letting go of your preferences, letting go of old strategies. Then we come into the other two of the three um, forms of wise intention, and that's uh, inner and outer goodwill, and inner and outer harmlessness. And the inner and outer goodwill often is seen as the cultivation of loving kindness. 
And the inner and outer harmlessness is seen as the cultivation of compassion. And <clears throat> these are beautiful in combination with renunciation because if it was just wise intention by renunciation, you would get to a kind of very empty, open space where you owned nothing. And there are some uh, aesthetics at the time of the Buddha where they wouldn't wear clothing, they wouldn't own a bowl, they would just eat what you could put in, in their hand. And so they were uh, more in the realm of mastering renunciation, physical renunciation, than the Buddhist monks. They didn't have clothing, um, they didn't have a bowl, they just ate what was put in their hand, they slept, they had no um, cabins to live in, they just opened themselves up to the elements. Some Buddhist monks did take those austerity practices on, um, but they, uh, they practiced greater renunciation. But they might not necessarily also have been motivated um, by these next two intentions, which is uh, just as much as you renounce, you are asked to cultivate goodwill and a care for harmlessness. And they go, they go together well, not the same thing. So goodwill and harmlessness are meant to untangle uh, the third root of wrong view, that comes out of wrong view, hatred. Goodwill <clears throat> establishes um, value in all life. So hatred begins as we begin to diminish the value of another. We begin to see them as less worth our respect, less worth our appreciation, less worth um, our consideration. And that can keep diminishing to the point where we start getting the opposite. This person is not only not worth my consideration, they're worth my condemnation. This person isn't worth my uh, appreciation, they're worth my scorn. This person, you start to frame somebody or some being, some community of people in the negative and they get stuck in your mind as um, only their poor qualities. If that... <clears throat> if you establish that towards yourself or towards others, that, uh, that hatred, then it's easy to take another step, a more violent step, which is actually to treat, um, to justify harm. Because I don't value you much, it's easy to harm you. Or I may have valued you, <clears throat> but I am so greedy for this other thing, I don't mind harming you. And it's how greed, hatred, and harm begin to uh, really tighten the knots of... Uh, bad ways of thinking, and bad actions. When you have greed, um, hatred, and harm <clears throat> become your guiding principles. So greed becomes a under wrong view. I don't have enough now, therefore I have to get something. It's over here, it's over there, I get it. There's not enough to go around, you can't have it. Get away from me, get away from it. And all of a sudden the harming somebody, being competitive, being scarce in your mind can take over your whole view and your strategies from wrong view, can grow greed, hatred, and harm. So we get just as dedicated to cultivating uh, goodwill and harmlessness, not just renunciation. Renunciation, again, can make you um, very simple, but it doesn't necessarily make you warm. It doesn't necessarily counter the irritations and the, uh, you might renounce things out of hatred. You might be so, uh, as a young man, I was frustrated by the world. 
So part of the benefit of being a renunciate was I was just frustrated. Like, I don't, it's so complicated being human and nobody's doing it right. So nobody's doing it right. It's so complicated. <clears throat> and so some of that was like, I don't like humanity. I kind of do, but it's so painful to be among people that, you know, there's some loss, but, you know, I don't mind. And at that time, I like, other people couldn't imagine it. At that time, it actually was blissful for me to spend a lot of time with just a few people, I, a few chosen people in the monastery I would connect to. It was a strategy. It kind of bought me some spaciousness from my own irritations. But it meant that the, the realms I could be happy in were quite small. You know, I had to, there was my cabin and the few people who visited me. That's the only place on the planet that I was free. Outside of that, I had to meet people. I was running back into my old irritations and frustrations and judgments of myself and others and tangled back up. So it's not the entirety of um, why I <clears throat> lived in the monasteries. It wasn't even like most of why I lived there, but it was a, a, a slight um, burn in the back of my mind that I was frustrated in how people behaved, how I behaved, and what came out of that. So just renouncing doesn't, um, doesn't free us. It frees us temporarily because we've renounced something, we've kind of let go. But in that letting go, we can be kind of free-floating and vulnerable to when we can't let go, when we come into contact, when we come into relationship. Just the letting go strategy is one for countering the clutching and craving and uh, grasping. But we also need to look at patterns of of hatred and hostility, irritation, the framing of people, uh, yourself or others, in a in a very bad light, bad context, the uh, the heaviness of judgments that can come in, the abuses that can come in, in your mind as you begin to demean somebody, and then the type of actions that happen in your mind or in your actual activities that cause harm. And how has your view of the world, um, again, the mind is the forerunner of all experience. <clears throat> how has your mind, how's your mind in that moment that harm seems like the right thing to do? And so you know you're in wrong view because harm wants to come out of it. So the intentions of harm <clears throat> reveal a mind that doesn't have right view. And it's kind of nice because if you actually are in wrong view, you don't necessarily know you're in wrong view. But suddenly you have this stance that I won't act upon. Um, I won't allow actions to come out that are harmful. So I really want to kill this mosquito and I've taken a vow not to. So if I don't kill mosquitoes just because I've taken a vow not to, it's not necessarily exposing my wrong view. I just have a, a vow of harmlessness. But if I go into the intention behind the action, then I can see through intention, my mind is gathering in this towards this harmful action. That very gathering towards harming something begins to show me that my view and understanding have fallen into wrong view. That the state I'm in is intolerable and therefore harming another is justifiable, even a mosquito. That means I have to then walk myself back through the intention, back to the view I have, and let go of the concepts, let go of the framing I have. It's like, ah, oh, I just, I really want sleep, and therefore this mosquito has to die. <clears throat> it's like, 
oh, I'm attached to sleeping. And it's not, you know, it's, it's a pretty common thing to be attached to because it's hard to live the next day without it. It's hard to be, have a sleepless night. It's very uncomfortable. But is it really, does that really justify the death of another being and the actions that come through that type of uh, death? Sure. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> what it does again, there's sort of um, okay. Here's an analogy. Um, I have I have an acquaintance who bought land and he wanted to build a little uh, monastery on it, but they weren't sure it was high up in these dry hills if there was water there, and so they test drilled in a few places they couldn't find any water and he was about to give up on the whole project. But he had this water diviner come in. He had these two little rods and he walked around and he said, there's water here, there's water here. Places they hadn't thought to drill. They were just, you know, sample drilling, hadn't found anything. And he got this one spot and they're like, whoa, there's a lot of water here. This is actually where you could draw up and you could actually flourish a community here because we finally found water. <clears throat> This is a, a difficult part of the path, but where your mind would go towards killing the mosquito, you just pull the parking brake up. This is a commitment to nonviolence. You just grab it with both hands. It's like parking a car in San Francisco. Sometimes you can't click it twice. You gotta click it five times to make sure you don't really roll. You click it up and it's like, I will not kill this mosquito. And then you're stuck. You're stuck fuming, oh, and, and it's just enough to stop the action of harm with a commitment. And because you commit there and you pull that parking brake up on that action, the only way to actually come back to anything that's peaceful is to begin to then, like finding the water in the dry land, you, that's where you drill. You drill where there is suffering. You drill where there's agitation. Not, you don't follow the action out you block it with commitment to non-harming. And then in that very same spot, you're then left with all the rage. And then you have to then, you have motivation to find the source of that rage. And the source of the rage is not the mosquito. This mm, is no justification for brutal, unequivocal murder. You are killing another being. I know you guys have, may have not worked with mosquitoes, so I might sound like, okay, he's, he's lost it because he's... <clears throat> and I've had, when I was camping, sometimes it'd be a hot day on this canoe and there'd be, I'd be carrying a canoe between lakes and there'd be like 20 mosquitoes and I'd just be gripped with this rage at like the, the biting and the stinging <clears throat> and the buzz, that incredible buzz. But I've done my work to pull up that parking brake on the action, I will not have this intention flourish into action. And then I'm left with all the rage. And it's like, well, the only way down from this rage is not through action, that action, but to find the source of it. And I better find it soon because there's a lot of rage here. What's going down? Well, it shouldn't be like this. Oh, really? You're in the Canadian woods on a hot summer day and it shouldn't be like this okay, well, it should be like this, but I don't want it like this. Well, you want to be up here 
do you want to be up here or not? It's like, well, I do want to be up here. I guess I have to come to terms with there being mosquitoes. Okay. What if there were no, no mosquitoes? Well, all the dragonflies would die, and then the birds would die, and the ecosystem would collapse without mosquitoes. And it seems strange to do this, but through drilling this down, getting rid of it, I come up to the, I come up to the Canadian wilderness, and I don't do much for it. But one thing I do is I feed the mosquitoes. <laughs> it offers me all this, it opened up my spiritual path. It granted me insight into renunciation. I don't do much for it. I, I take the dead trees and I burn and make fire, but they would have done that anyhow. What, what have I done for this place? Well, I've given, you know, three drops of blood, or more than that, maybe at most at the end of the season, I've given like a teaspoon, a quarter of a teaspoon of blood, and that's my gift. And then suddenly, that strange, if it was just a, you know, but that actually can, the same battle with mosquitoes has turned, I, I swear it's happened authentically a few times, where it was actually my dana, my great generosity to the Canadian wilderness, not to kill the mosquito. And it starts by saying, this mosquito that's full of my blood starts to fly away. I go after it and I kill it. I'm not gonna, I'm, it's not gonna unsting. It got my blood. I might as well celebrate. It's like, okay, there you go. That's my dana. That's my gift to you all. May the birds flourish and may this place be well. Then the mosquito's drawing the blood and I could kill it, but I'm still gonna have the itch. It's like, okay, you already stuck me. So here's where my generosity starts. And I've actually gone into one's landing. It's like, you know, if you actually get the blood now, you'll be happy, I'll be happy, and I'll go back to sleep. So it's, it's the two o'clock withdrawal at the ATM of blood, but that's, that's the way it's going down. Come and get me. You know, one mosquito, I can try to kill you and have a sleepless night because they're hard to find in a tent and it's hours trying to get that one mosquito. I could go that route. Or I could make a donation to the great Canadian wilderness. <laughs> and that <clears throat> strange framing has come from, again, starting with the parking brake that pulls back on action. I will not commit harm. Just not even make it a 99.9%. It's so clean when it's 100% in your commitment. Actions happen out of your control, but when there's not deliberation in your mind, it's nice. Then you go down and you begin to untangle your preferences and how things should be and how you want them to be. That commitment to harmlessness, then coming down to a place where you can renounce the attachment. And then you, you can't even imagine going that far into it because it seems like madness. But through these, uh, through these openings, when you let go, suddenly I've given blood to the Canadian wilderness and I'm not a visitor anymore. I'm, a, I'm part of the ecosystem. I'm not someone taking pictures of the ecosystem. I'm actually of the ecosystem. I, I hope this is translating and not, <laughs> not painting me into the corner of uh, uh, great weirdness. But <clears throat> then that whole framing where I stop my violence opens me up into the web of life. I'm a part of the web of life. My breath goes out and the trees breathe it in. The trees breathe out and I breathe it in. That's a great exchange. I don't struggle there. But the mosquitoes, they draw my blood and that, that feeds the, uh, the dragonflies. And I love the dragonflies. The dragonflies feed the birds. And the birds propagate the blueberries. And I eat the blueberries. And it's like, wow. By this small surrendering, I've now entered into the web of life. 
but by killing the mosquito. And it's also, the, the, you take one mosquito, I'm dwelling on this, you know, this is just the battle with a mosquito, but this goes everywhere. I'll talk about that in a sec, but a mosquito can be a harbinger of a sleepless night and um, vermin. It could be a pest, it could be a horrible thing, or it's a miracle that has learned how to fly. This little thing with a brain so small you, could, you couldn't even see it with your naked eye actually knows how to fly. It knows how to live in the Canadian wilderness. It knows how to survive the Canadian winters. And this little mosquito, not it, but its life cycle, it flies through the air and it can land. And sometimes I don't even know it. It's landed on me. It's got this little tiny straw. It goes in, draws out a tiny drop of blood, and then barely has the strength to fly away, full mosquito, and it flies as far as it can and it rests. That is an amazing thing. That's an unponderable miracle. That same mosquito, I go whap, and it's just a lump of dead mosquito, miracle ended. It's just there, it actually is like, now you gotta get rid of the little body, you gotta get rid of the little corpse. It stained the place where you slapped it, and now there's blood where you slapped it. There's only a crime scene. <laughs> and this little mosquito corpse, it doesn't know how to fly. It's not alive. It's not, a, it's not this incredible miracle. After 13.7 billion years of existence, the universe has produced something that knows how to fly. It's now just a lump of matter headed towards its, its decay. It was a blood spot. I still have the sting on it. And I'm left with the pattern. I'm left with the ox cart groove in my mind that hatred actually is now deeper. The pattern of hatred has become action, which means the groove is deeper. That's what the, the Buddha has um, in that same first uh, offering in the Dhammapada, right after he says the mind is, uh, experience is born from the mind, you can have happiness like a shadow or trouble like an ox cart or like a cart behind the ox. This is where this famous line comes in, just just right below that, hatred has never dispelled hatred in this world. So that's on the realm of mosquitoes. And if you can conquer mosquitoes, then you can conquer roommates or <laughs> spouses or children. <clears throat> and you don't let hatred define and become the pathway of that relationship. If you can do it in your family, you can do it in your community. If you can do it in your community, you can do it in your country. If you can do it in your country, you can do it between countries. Whole wars are not started by some other pathway than greed, hatred, and delusion. This triple poison, whether it's killing a mosquito, stealing somebody's M&M, or being foggy because you can't quite understand how to turn your car on, those moments in the small are the same three elements that have caused every war that has destroyed this current economy through uh, incredible avarice and has left people wandering without really knowing the way through. And that's been ancient. There have been ancient wars. There's ancient greed stories. Uh, stories as far as they go back. Some of our oldest human stories are about murder and killing or about uh, craving and longing or people trying to ponder like, what is this whole thing about and how do we steer clearly? So whether it's the small thing a thousand years ago or a small thing now or a large societal event before or now, greed, hatred, and delusion, when you act on them, 
you dig a deeper rut. When you dwell upon them, the time you spend hating the mosquito but not killing it, you're still digging the pathway. You're justifying the hatred. So you have to pull the parking brake up two clicks more, even on the thinking that's hating the mosquito, and start drill, baby, drill there. Drill into the mind states that are that convinced that the killing of a mosquito is the way to happiness. Because if you do drill there, you will find greed, hatred, and delusion. You'll expose them, and you'll begin to untangle them. Anywhere you're finding hatred, even justified hatred, drill there and find your attachments and wrong views there. It's hard to do because when they surge in us, it's so unpleasant to arrest them and begin doing the opposite of coming into the mind stream that's so um, caught in the froth and the tension and the distress that you want to get rid of it. It's like, it's so unpleasant. If I just killed it, I'd be done. Yet that very action is the drinking of the salt water. And I've, I've been um, with the 10-year-old campers when I became a leader at this camp. See them on the first week where they're, they chase after mosquitoes trying to kill them. They're so angry with them. When they find them, it's like, this one's not even trying to sting you. But it exists, therefore it must die. And they have these huge mosquito wars. <clears throat> and to see them five weeks later, liberated beings, not fully liberated, but they are, they, their happiness is more secure and it's harder to ruffle them. <clears throat> These same 10-year-olds <clears throat> can handle rain, sunshine, mosquitoes, no mosquitoes. And they do this when a mosquito comes. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a liberated 10-year-old that can out a mosquito versus, I will kill you. <laughs> and then that... I kill you and I'll torture you and then I'll burn you and ah, like all this foment of this rage <clears throat> is not a free mind. But seeing that 10-year-old handle rain, handle uh, hot days, handle beautiful days, handle mosquitoes with less need to harm is the pathway to that 10-year-old's liberation and why they have a global sense of happiness and why when their parents come up at the end of the summer to see them, like, oh my God, who is this young person? I gave you my child and you gave me back a wise being. Like I've seen parents just be stunned at the child they meet after six weeks of surrendering to things as they are, doing deep renunciation, letting go of their video games and their junk food and whatever they were doing. <clears throat> and then I've been that 10-year-old and I've gone home to see my friends. What did you do this summer? Nothing. Anything fun happen? No, not really. Boring. It's like, wow. And then they was like, you seem different. You seem really different. And it wasn't through gaining. It was actually through losing. It was giving. And people say, what would I get out of coming to a meditation retreat? It's like, hopefully nothing. Hopefully you'll walk away with less than you came with. And that will be the reward. And then when you have, uh, what was the other question? Yeah. Are you going to go through this, uh, like taking an example that's a little easier to trace through? Because <laughs> I'm really interested in this drilling down. Drilling down. Or, um, using yeah. an example that I can relate to better than the mosquito. Than the mosquito, yeah. <clears throat> well, unfortunately, that, yeah, let's see if I could do that. 
one thing that's more um, more accurate. I mean, here the, some of the times that were most obvious were places where I, I had strong practice. So there was one time where I was doing a loving kindness meditation retreat, and I couldn't stand people. It was I was getting so sensitive to my heart that I started seeing all these underlying patterns of frustration. And so I was doing walking meditation when people, other people were sitting, and I was sitting when other people were walking. And I was feeling a little bit of shame around that, but that was, it was productive. But this one guy picked up the same habit, and he walked right next to me whenever I was walking. And I was just livid. I was like, I'm, you don't understand. <laughs> I'm not in the hall because I don't want to be around people, but you're walking right next to me. And then he had this squeaky sneaker, um, and one of his foots dragged along the carpet, so it made this little zzz sound every other foot. And I loathed him. I was sitting there, and I was trying not to loathe him. I tried practicing loving kindness for him, but I couldn't stand him. And I was just like, "Stop walking by me, and stop making that sound, and change your shoes. They squeak. How can you not know this?" It's torturing me, and you're even closer to it. Why is this driving you crazy? You must be dull. You must be a bad meditator. You must. And I was just hating this person. <clears throat> and then um, it was satisfying to be the better meditator in my mind. It was satisfying. It got, brought me a little bit of happiness. That, but I was still boiling. I couldn't do anything about it because, luckily, there was a parking brake up on talking to him or writing him a note, because I definitely would have. So I sat with all this frustration. Clearly, the problem was him. But I couldn't act on it. And so I was held in this hot pool of my own frustration for days upon days upon days. And I was hearing the teachings, but they weren't really penetrating in. And then finally they began to, it's like, do I really want to spend the rest of this retreat loathing this person? No. So let's drill here. What's going on? What's happening? And I had the view, we should be silent. So it feels like right view. And he's not being silent. So he's obviously the problem because my view is framing him as the problem. But therein I caught, that can't be the view. It seems like the view. It's very close to the view. You shouldn't make sounds when walking. It sounds like a Dharma retreat. But I was like, that actually isn't the view. My freedom isn't in those conditions. So it began to dawn on me, maybe the problem it actually is over on my end. And so <clears throat> one point when we were walking, I put my head against the wall and I just listened to the foot dragging on the carpet. Like, it's zip, zip, zip. It's like, why would that torture me? Why would that much sound torture me? Why would I spend this much time loathing, hating, assassinating, torturing in my mind, condemning. Why, why would I go that much over that sound? That sound can't generate this much aggravation. It's like, well, then I got curious about drilling. At that point, I was like, okay, this is really out of hand. Where is this coming from? So I sat there in the hot water, not being able to do anything other, because I would, which is the nice thing about having the break on action. And I began to explore down, like, what, why is this frustrating? Well, if it wasn't here, I could meditate and I could have a little more concentration. It's like, well, what would that give me? That's nice, but is that worth being tortured about? This whole practice is about not being 
stuck on conditions. Why would that be? It's like, if I could finally meditate, oh, then I could walk into the interviews with the teachers and not report anger. I'm practicing loving kindness, and I walk in, and all I talk about is anger. And that's embarrassing, and it's frustrating. And I feel like kind of a failure, but I'm even more so a failure when this guy drags his shoe next to me. Because rather than experiencing loving kindness, I experience rage, and I feel like a meditative failure. Like, well, is that what, like, that's so wrong in my view. I was like, I don't want to be a good, I don't want to go in and have the teachers tell me I'm good. That's not the whole thing. I'm not going to, the Buddha isn't going to give me the badge of enlightenment. I actually have to win that one. I need to let go of the need for teacher's praise. I need to let go of the need of gaining something out of this retreat. I need to let go of wishing things were different. And by drilling there and finding that was actually the root that was having me hate him, <clears throat> then I actually I could actually let go there. The drilling was hard, but when I found the actual attachments to better conditions, attachments to more concentration, attachments to praise from teachers, attachments to validating steps on the path, attachments to being a good Buddhist, attachments to being worthy of the Buddha's teachings, all these things were actually hidden. And I thought that they were the right the right holding of the Dharma. But I was gripping. I was gripping the Dharma. And I wanted it to be like gripping a life preserver. I was gripping it, wanting it to save me. So I was gripping the Dharma and then hating this guy. But the very framing of the Dharma couldn't have me hate him. So it exposed, I was using Dharma with wrong view and my attachments had snuck in through the Dharma, through my understanding of it. And I was clinging to the times of the teachers like, oh, you're making progress. Like, yes. <laughs> I wanted that yes feeling. I didn't want the, yeah, another day of frustration, I'm not so good at this. I'm like, cheer up, little guy, you're doing great. It's like, oh, <laughs> one of those interviews. You know, I was like, yeah, I'm, thank you, I'm doing well. I didn't want the validating one. <clears throat> and then letting go of that whole conundrum liberated its way all the way up. I was like, yeah, here's this guy. He's working as hard as I am. He wants to be free. Unbeknown to him, hopefully, he's been loathed by the person next to him. Poor guy. He's there, <laughs> slugging away through his mind, and he's had somebody assassinating him, torturing him, <laughs> delighting in his demise. Walking in, like, whoa, if he only knew how much he'd been loathed. He's probably got some, you know, cheap pair of sneakers, and he's got a bad leg or something like that because he's dragging his foot on the carpet. And like, all of a sudden, the very same thing brought me compassion for him. We were on the road together. Here was my guy. Here we are walking together. For some reason, the two of us don't want to sit with everybody, but he's, he's walking with me and he's dragging his foot. And he's shown me how caught I was in this trap, this blind trap. So thank you for like walking by me, letting me hate you for days to show me where I was actually attached. Now it's you and me together and we're on the path. We're really walking the Eightfold Path and this generosity starts coming out and this appreciation for him and generosity for the teachers who told me to buck up little guy every time I walked in with my little droopy meditator self-assessment. It's like, yeah, this is a good world. This is a good place. People are really rooting for me. These conditions are amazing. And I broke through one of my old patterns, my old wagon wheel. If I get praised by my elders, I'm on the right path. If they don't praise me, then I'm in, I'm in shaky ground. So drilling there, rather than killing the mosquito, rather than a assassinating the guy in my mind for the 10,000th time, I took my wisdom 
into all that was all those constructions down through the thorny thickets and actually began to find the root and the root is in the view is in the intentions it's in the harming intentions it's in the the assassination of somebody where you start to really demean them it's where you can't let go and won't let go and where you begin stiffening up your resolve and your and your clutching of the dharma your clutching of your goals that in the three um, wrong intentions they're opposite they'll tell you they're the right thing but they will betray you every time into suffering and practicing renunciation goodwill and harmlessness can seem like it's not the right medicine and over time you see it really is the right medicine when done right right renunciation right loving kindness right compassion, commitment to harmlessness, that in every situation, when you go against previous wagon wheel ruts and you step out into new territory and commit to harmlessness, goodwill, and non-clinging, non-grasping, that that actually is the solution. In the training of that, you might overdo it. You might not protect yourself and out of goodwill, you not, might not hold up good boundaries you might renounce too much and find that you've renounced water on a long, hot walk and realize that wasn't, the, you know, renouncing the clinging to it, but actually bringing water with you is a good thing. And um, maybe a, a slight defense of yourself that might even be physical. Like I once had a, a fairly angry teenager get so angry that he tried to hit me. I wasn't going to, you know, be harmless. I wanted both of us to not have harm. I had to avoid his swing. <clears throat> but I didn't have to hate him for it. And those are moments where really the, these three intentions really did take my values and my view and allow that view to make it into this realm, the realm of being and action and choices. And it wasn't a lofty New Year's resolution that never made it to reality. It had to pass through the realm of intention had to pass through renunciation, wise renunciation, wise goodwill, and wise harmlessness. And when that, though that bridge is strong, all that wisdom makes it into action, internal actions and external actions. Yeah. So at this point, it, um, I just want to see if you guys have any questions on this topic. We've been at it for a while. I spent more time on renunciation than the other two. But the other two are, they, they are talked a lot about a lot through the practice of loving kindness, the practice of compassion. Um, there are also, uh, you know, three equally valid, beautiful columns of right intention. But making the spaciousness from letting go does open up the capacity for being generous for um, being dedicated to other people because you're not so caught in your own needs that it's easy to be generous for others. You know, you make um, a beautiful dinner and you can share it. Or somebody else comes and it's easy to give what you don't truly need if someone else is in greater need. You can let go of your own selfishness wisely so that we're all in it together interconnection can come out of renunciation. Interconnection can come out of goodwill and harmlessness. Then you're on, you're a good player on the team of life. Yeah. I'm thinking about like, let's say you transpose the mosquitoes and uh, yeah. to like you're in the jungle and like there's an elephant that's coming after you. Yeah. Like,
or everything in my mind right now is muddled in between like not wanting to harm and self-defense, meta, uh, and I know it's probably like by situation and it takes concern, but I'm just thinking like technically what the, like let's say I decide to have a weapon and I shoot the lion that's after me, like, yeah. like I do it out of fear, but then afterwards I, I have that blood on my hands. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like thinking where's the, is there a lion? Well, not so much a line, but there's, um, it's, it's good to have the, the, a sort of a compass heading that if you want full liberation, as understood by the Buddha, full liberation, not just um, beautiful liberation into living a good life, but full liberation, a fully liberating being would not harm another because there would be the right non-attachment to your own life. So, but that, that, that's a sort of a high bar of what arahants are like. An arahant wouldn't kill another being. So it would get killed. If it came to it, if it came to that situation, yeah. <clears throat> but then I'm not so sure that we should all walk out the door and not defend ourselves. Because I think there is a progression to make sure that that's, right, um, it truly is right renunciation, right harmlessness. And what I mean by that, this example might come up, might frame it. Um, In the Vietnam War, one of the senior uh, monks um, poured gasoline on himself and burned himself to death. It had a huge impact on how people were conceiving of the war. Many people have talked about that act since. And what people guessed at was that he was not in distress. He was not hating the war. He did not hate himself. It was truly an act that was the, it was the fundamental culmination of his compassion to do such an incredible act. A number of young monks and nuns wanted to follow and they were stopped. And they were stopped because it's like you're inspired to do this. But chances are it's not actually the culmination of your compassion that you'd be doing this. It's out of your frustration that the war is still going. You don't feel like you can make an impact, so you're willing to sacrifice yourself. These motivations are not as pure. These motivations are not that aligned. So please don't just sacrifice yourself because it's somewhat noble. It's so... it's. For those younger people, it would, be, it would be tied with frustration, not a true self-love that you're then love and love of other, that you can surrender that through this act. So I'm not sure if that helps, if that situation is, um, but it, it does show how someone could um, not, not protect themselves, not cherish themselves more than others for the greater good. And when you, when you come to uh, full awakening, there, um, there aren't stories of people defending themselves, um, cherishing their life more than another life, cherishing your life more than the lion's life. Now, I just think that that's important to know that's one possible, and two, holding that as, a, um, as one possible outcome of walking the path. 
And knowing that before that, other things can come in, like can I do harm reduction? So I've seen uh, dogs get stirred up and they want to come, uh, you know, defend their territory. And I might say, like, if I stay, if I don't protect myself, I will get bitten. I don't hate the dog, but I don't want to get bitten. So for both of us, because he can't seem to change his mind, I'm going to step behind the fence so that I won't be bitten. So I luckily in that situation found a way to not get bitten and not hurt the dog. But if a, if a dog got stirred up and looked like it was about to bite, bite a child, I would kick the dog. Not of hatred, it's not a bad dog. I just love dogs so much and I know that when they get stirred up, sometimes they can't overcome their aggression. And if they're about to attack something, it, there needs to be an intervention. So I've definitely stopped dogs from fighting. I've stopped dogs from hurting children. I've stopped dogs from hurting myself. And luckily I love dogs enough that it isn't out of hatred. Sometimes like, it's a little frustrating that they do that, but it's kind of dog nature. Neither in the neighborhood of your question, but not, but not on it. I can tell by your... <laughs> well, it's, I've never been chased by a lion and had to, had to shoot it. If you can defend yourself, I think you should. Any way that you can. Even if it means that the guy... Yeah. Yeah. But I, what I would do with that is I would definitely defend yourself because you're not less valuable than he is. So definitely defend yourself. But there are ways that you had better hold the after experience with wisdom. Wisdom is to forgive yourself, to find a way over time if you, to forgive that person and understand how they might have gotten into such a situation that they were going to create such a horrible act. And come to such understanding that you, because the action itself saves you, but then it sets you up for a lot of um, frustration, um, anger. There's a lot after the, after the act. And there's a whole holding of that. And then in, um, in proceeding, you know, knowing that that might happen, uh, until it happens, we don't know. I, there's another... Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe this is more of a technical question, but um, in my mind, I always have a little bit of confusion between the terms loving kindness and compassion. In my yeah. mind, they seem similar. Yeah. English, yeah. Um, <clears throat> the origination of compassion being harmlessness—that's kind of more easy to understand. Is is the distinction? And I'm just looking for you to elaborate on it in the amount of time we have. But essentially, like loving kindness and goodwill is more to do with cultivation of your mind, mental state, and compassion and harmlessness more to do with how you speak and act in the world? Or are they both to do with that? They, they both work on both levels. And so, <clears throat> um, loving kindness is often expressed as a type of generosity. So that would be the action of loving kindness would be... Um, uh, caring for someone, and that uh, um, they often talk about some the way a mother uh, licks its baby, a mother cow licks its baby calf right after birth. It's tending, it's caring, it's it's full of its attention is on this being caretaking. <clears throat> that being may be sleeping, may be quite 
uh, is not in distress. So it's not the distress that's called out to love. It's just seeing the value and the tenderness. There's loyalty and love for this tender newborn calf. Compassion comes up when we see the anguish that's coming in someone's suffering. So you don't have to be in anguish for me to care for you. But definitely, if you're in anguish, some type of um, pain, physical pain or mental pain, I might take a step back because I don't want to feel the pain. I, I would want to protect myself and say, well, that's complicated. You seem like you're in a bad mood or, oh my God, there's blood there. I don't want to see that. And so I might shrink back because you're in an unpleasant state and my contact with you is unpleasant. So loving kindness might also stay loyal. But compassion is a, is a wisdom and love that arises that really can empathize with something difficult. And because there's the elements of someone suffering are unpleasant, if you're not paying attention, the mind might recoil a little bit from the unpleasantness. And so you need wisdom and a different type of love, compassion, that can feel like, wow, that must be really difficult. And one of the difficulties of suffering is that people take steps back. People feel already overwhelmed by their lives. They don't want to get messed up in my complications. So suddenly I'm getting kind of alone here while I'm falling into a place where I need help. People are actually stepping back. And that's kind of another layer of terror. It's like, wow, I'm suffering and people aren't stepping in. And you see one person who does step in and they might say, hey, how's it going? That might be a loving kindness, like, oh, I care for you. But compassion goes, what's happening here? And it really actually is the draw of the unpleasant. That's part of the, the fuel of the love of compassion, that when things are difficult, it actually strengthens the compassion. The more suffering, the more compassion. Because it's, it's a love born out of an empathy and an understanding of what it's like to suffer. And so that would lead into harmlessness because you can't imagine causing harm because you empathetically can imagine what that okay. what that action would cause in another. Yeah. Because you can imagine harmlessness and be imagining. Yeah. Right, right, and it lets an integrity to your actions because you can put yourself in another person's shoes and imagine their life getting harder because of your actions. And it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's kind of like not doing my dishes at home. I mean, I mean, it's a very small example, but not doing my dishes at home. It's easier for me to do them later, but I have compassion. I know that when my housemates come home, it's one more thing they have to move around so they can cook their meal. So I like a lot of compassion for others. I'll take on a little bit of more difficulty and I'll, I'll do better actions because I know if I don't, there's this harm on others. And that's just dishes versus um, really making life harder for other people for my gain. And then questioning that is a way that we both might win or with compassion, I'm still going to do what I'm going to do, but I, I recognize that this is causing harm on you. It, it, that's it, it's not an actual bad action, it's just you can't see the, the way otherwise.
feel compassion when you see suffering without suffering yourself. What, what happens with the development of, of compassion is that the beauty of the connection is more delightful than the pain through how you're connecting. And so the, the beautiful resonance of the interconnection is so, um, is so beautiful that your mind is working that way, that your heart is working that way, that you're not afraid of pain in yourself or in another, that you're free of that, that retraction, that that field of beauty is, is more beautiful than whatever pain happens to be arising in the moment. So you, you're, in a, you're having a really hard day, or a parent dies, my parent has just died, and so we connect there, and that union is more beautiful than the grief that is causing the union. And that's it can come to a place where you don't even grieve the passing of a parent fully because you know that people pass. But you do know there's a type of somberness around that. And then you see somebody else that's happened to, and that's actually uniting you. And because we get so lonely around our pain, people struggle where we have deep pain, that there's bonding with somebody, connecting with somebody, where they're isolated in pain, could either be so lonely or it can be so uniting to be able to have somebody be there with you, which is a lot of the beauty of the hospice movement, or working with prisoners who feel like they've been forgotten and to say, I haven't forgotten you, that they haven't been forgotten even though they're in prison, um, is a tremendous nourishment even though the conditions of going into a prison and seeing somebody suffering there is unpleasant, it's more beautiful to stay connected in that spot. Yeah. I'd like to head towards a wrap-up and just um, just describe uh, two people that get talked about a lot, a lot um, who I think have this beautiful intention, and that's... <clears throat> Nelson Mandela and Aung San Suu Kyi. Both of them, uh, Nelson Mandela spent uh, 27 years in prison. And uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, if you don't know who she is, Nelson Mandela was a a leader in South Africa. And Aung San Suu Kyi um, was one of the freedom and democracy leaders in Burma. And she was under house arrest for 15 years out of the last 21 and you can confine somebody and they suffer. But if you have uh, the beauty of right view and you go into a confinement, that time of confinement can actually be a time of quite deep development. And so both Nelson Mandela and Aung San Suu Kyi probably would not have preferred to be confined, but they use that time of confinement to deepen their own a relationship to their wisdom and their compassion, their resolve. So their time of confinement actually ended up being a power of their resolve and then ended up when they became free to have stood the test of that adversity and then for that have been role models for millions, tens of millions of people that they had that capacity 
to stay true to their beliefs, to, to follow their intentions, and then become uh, leaders and uh, inspirational figures for not only their cultures, but people all around the world. And that also comes to the power, not that many people can have the views of nonviolence, but how many people can actually um, stay steady in the intention so that when life throws you incredible challenges, you don't uh, fall into actions, internal or external, that don't align with your views. But it's actually the power of the bridge of your intention that has your highest values stay steady and become uh, actions of speech, body, and mind, um, even under adversity. So I'll leave you with those two um, noteworthy people. Thank you for your attention this morning and uh, for staying with the full session. It was a long one, um, maybe long-winded. So thank you for your patience. I believe this is, have you been told if this is a talking lunch or a silent lunch? Yesterday, what's that? I think this one is talking. I think there was only one silent lunch. So, um, talking outside or below the gate, uh, silent inside. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.